The cause of the Great War of the Rebellion against the United States will have to be attributed to slavery, Grant wrote in the final chapter of his memoir. The language South Carolina used to justify seceding from the Union was just as clear. An increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery has led to a disregard of their obligations, and the laws of the general government has ceased to affect the objects of the Constitution. The motivation of Northerners was clear as well. They fought to maintain the Union. Emancipation was not popular in the North at the outbreak of the war, and Abraham Lincoln made it clear, time and time again, that slavery would be left alone, particularly in the loyal border states. Emancipation was ultimately embraced as a military measure that was necessary and effective in weakening the South. Even during the difficult period of Reconstruction, the priority of most Northerners was to maintain the Union, and efforts to usher in black suffrage or civil rights were largely opposed. Abraham Lincoln's assassination in April of 1865, just days after Grant accepted Lee's surrender at Appomattox, made the already challenging task of Reconstruction nearly impossible. Andrew Johnson was a Southerner who had remained loyal to the Union throughout the war. When he rose to the presidency, however, he became the enemy of the radical Republicans in Congress who opposed Johnson's lenient Reconstruction policies. Grant remained the general of the army and, again, was increasingly seen as the country's best hope of maintaining the Union. Joan Waugh, the author of Ulysses S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth. It is, it is complicated. I would, I would say this, the war and the peace was very political. The war was always political, and the way that I, that I, and this is not new with me, but that I try and bring Grant's career to this place, to his, his position in Johnson administration, is that we have to think of him in the same way that we think of Washington and Eisenhower as soldier statesmen. And during the war, Grant was a, in many ways a soldier statesman. Statesman. He and and one of the things that that we don't really characterize Grant as is a liberator, and he was a part of that. His armies and Grant himself liberated hundred thousand African Americans during the Vicksburg campaign. This was in Mississippi, the Mississippi Valley, which was the crucible of Black freedom and black and the, the difficult tra- transition from, from slavery to freedom. And so Grant was familiar with Reconstruction and the goals of Reconstruction as well as familiar with the cost of winning this war. And he came to, to Washington in, uh, to, to serve Johnson, and, and as the months unfolded, he watched, along with the, other, the, the Republican Party, Johnson becoming, uh, becoming the kind of president that, that seemed to abandon the goals of war. That is to say, yes, we want reunion, we want reconciliation, we want peace, but there also has to be justice for the ex-slaves. And some kind of some kind of order bringing those goals of the war, let's just say reunion and emancipation, to reality. And Johnson seemed to be increasingly uh, alienated from the Republican Party, which he was not a Republican. He was a Democrat who was a senator from Tennessee. Uh, at the eve of war, and he remained loyal. And he was a good uh, governor of Tennessee, wartime governor of Tennessee, but he was utterly unprepared to be a leader of the Republican Party. Increasingly dissatisfied with Johnson, the fractured Republican Party made common cause in attacking his administration and his lenient Reconstruction policies. Paul Cahan, author of The Presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, You know, one of the things that I always like to emphasize to people is that the political landscape of the 19th century is very, very different than the political landscape of the 20th and the 21st. We live in periods where we have two relatively stable political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, and most people 
you know, when they join a party, tend to stay with that party for the rest of their lives, or if they do change parties, they change maybe once. But for the generation that's born in the early part of the 19th century, that's not true. Uh, you see the collapse of the first party system in the election of 1800. You see the collapse of the second party system in the lead up to the war. So there's a lot of political uncertainty. And the Republican Party is this fractious coalition of former Whigs, former Democrats, former know-nothings who were really held together by a shared antipathy towards slavery. But on a spectrum, I mean, there are some people who are demanding immediate abolition. There are some people who are saying things like, well, I don't really like it, but Congress doesn't have the right to legislate on it anywhere but in the territories, and there are people in between. And so the outbreak of the war basically fuses this coalition together, gives them a purpose. And once the war is over and slavery has been abolished, there are a lot of people who are saying in the Republican Party, do we need a Republican Party anymore? We've achieved our goal. You know, what do we stand for now that slavery has been abolished? And in fact, the party goes through a real crisis of identity. And it really becomes opposition to Andrew Johnson's reconstruction policies that gives the party a second lease on life, that fuses that coalition together um, to oppose Johnson. And so when they go looking for a presidential candidate in 1868, they need a candidate who is acceptable to all the different factions. And that's a really difficult thing to find. In addition, they need someone who's electorally viable. And so they kind of settle on Grant because, at least north of the Mason-Dixon, he's the most popular man in America. And he's got a little something for everyone. I mean, he's really a, a Rorschach test politically. Um, he idolizes Whigs, um, Zachary Taylor and uh, Winfield Scott. The only ballot he ever cast was in 1856, and it was for a Democrat. And he's got some attitudes toward Jews and toward immigrants that align nicely with elements of the Know Nothing Party. And so these various factions of the Republican Party can look at Grant and see someone that is broadly acceptable, if not their favorite candidate, if that makes sense. The Republicans scored a huge victory in the 1866 midterm elections, obtaining a veto-proof majority in Congress that they wielded against Johnson. Right away, the Republican Party was, uh, the Republican Party was divided as most of uh, our major political parties, or both of them, uh, Democrat and Republican, have always been divided in, into moderate, conservative, and radical Republicans. Radical Republicans, led by men like Charles Sumner of the Senate and, and Thaddeus Stevens in the House, are the ones that we remember because today we admire them the most. They wanted a more, much more uh, uh, progressive program for, for the uh, African Americans, and it was the radical Republicans who pushed for the 14th Amendment at, and the 15th Amendment, which, which um, were, were both very controversial in the North. Um, and, and Johnson's Reconstruction policy, as he, as he thought, was replicating Lincoln's generous pardons to white Southerners, bringing them back into the Union as quickly as possible. Um, once they, they accepted the 13th Amendment, and, and that was uh, unacceptable to, to many Republicans. Increasingly, Johnson's ill-advised, uh, angry uh, condemnation of radical Republicans was alienating uh, many, many more uh, of the party members who, who didn't necessarily support the radicals. So what you had is, is a, a mess. You had a mess at a time when people were tired of war, they were tired of it, just wanted it to be over. But Johnson was allowing Southern 
the ex-Confederate states to come back into the Union. These, uh, the voters were electing prominent ex-Confederate military and political figures. This was outrageous, and it culminated in Johnson's going uh, before the Northern electorate in the congressional elections of 1866 and, and promoting his vision. Johnson, who was not a Republican, as I mentioned before, wanted to sort of, he saw himself as a party combined conservative Republicans and most of the Democrats. And so that was, um, that all came down in flames when his party lost big time in Congress and the famous veto-proof Congress uh, came into came into uh, Washington D.C. and what happened after that in 1867 is that they nuked Johnson's Reconstruction and and started all over again. They divided the South in, up in the ex-Confederate states up into military districts and gave them strict steps if they wanted to come back in the Union, that they would have to hold a convention and accept the Constitution, accept the 14th Amendment. And it was, I mean, you can't imagine. I mean, we think today, I mean, obviously, we're in great turmoil. And, and uh, the, the political division of this country has, has been intense and powerful. But one can only imagine living back in the just after the Civil War when you have this gigantic, destructive war. You had chaos in the South. You had a, a president who was who was increasingly facing the threat of impeachment. You had military rule over the South. Constant riots and and that seemed to single out and murder black uh, people and it seems like the south was not even accepting the verdict of appomattox the the surrender agreement so i mean it it was it was really uh it's really kind of sickening and and in the middle of this you had ulysses grant who was who was at the uh, by the time that he um that he forged the appomattox agreement the person most uh, respected and honored next to Lincoln, I would say, in in the country. And when Lincoln died, Grant seemed to be a savior for for many people. He seemed to be an ocean of sanity um, amid this the roiling seas of the political and social and economic chaos that seemed to be enveloping the nation. And that is why he was uh, he was respected much more than Johnson, that he became disturbed by Johnson's actions that, that passed doubt in his mind that the goals of the war that the Northern people had sacrificed so much to achieve were going to be lost. The goals of a, a permanent reunion, a reunion that was generous, but on the terms of the, the winning side, and and some kind of place, some kind of space that would that would make the South a safe place to, for African Americans. I mean, it's it's a gigantic uh, gigantic story. I, I mean, bigger than any I can think of. Grant's campaign slogan "Let us have peace" appealed to many during the campaign of 1868. Sure. Sure. So Grant doesn't actually campaign by and large. Um, he accepts the nomination and then basically he allows his surrogates to sort of uh, uh, be the mouthpiece of the campaign. And there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that strategy because they can speak to local interests without binding him um, to anything that they say. Um, Grant himself doesn't really say a whole lot because in his mind he's going to be the non-political candidate he's going to be the non-political president um which is going to raise all kinds of issues once he gets into office um but let us have peace is a fantastic slogan because on the one hand it means so much and on the other hand it means absolutely nothing yes we have peace 
and you can read into that whatever you want. Does that mean uh, uh, we're going back to the antebellum period? Is it we're going to let the slave states in uh, as they were minus slavery? Does it mean that we're going to really uh, uh, do the sort of thoroughgoing social, political, cultural, and economic reform that a term like Reconstruction implies? Um, who are going to be the winners? Who are going to be the losers? And ultimately, what role, if any, are newly freed slaves going to play in American life? I mean, let us have peace is incredibly pithy, um, but it doesn't say a whole lot. And what it provides is maximum flexibility to grant. Um, he wants to come into office without having made any promises, without having any obligations to chart a course as he sees fit. The Grant administration's handling of the Alabama controversy was one of their biggest achievements. During the war, as, as most people know, uh, France and Great Britain were neutral, uh, officially neutral. Uh, although they supported, you know, uh, s some this really wild uh, monarch in in Mexico who kind of sort of had designs on recapturing parts of the states that had been uh, that were made of territory that the United States had gotten uh, as part of the Mexican-American War, and. Uh, there were elements in, in both Great Britain and to a lesser extent France that were supporting elements of the Confederacy. And in fact, a number of British shipbuilding firms sold ships to the Confederacy that ended up being used for military purposes and inflicting an incredible amount of damage on both federal government property and also on private property of Americans. And so as a result, there were some at the end of the war, uh, Sumner most notably, who were demanding that the United States go to war against Great Britain, that it demand in these impossible-to-pay indemnities, um, and basically anti-British sentiment um, has a long history in the United States. I mean, you know, we had fought two wars against Great Britain, uh, they had burned the capital of the United States. For some members of Congress, this was living history for them, uh, or excuse me, living memory. So there was a lot of, uh, there was a great deal of anti-British sentiment. And at one point, you know, uh, Grant had even proposed invading Mexico and, uh, you know, just deposing this uh, European-backed monarch and, and seizing part of the country and, you know, ultimately doesn't end up doing it. Um, but so there are all of these elements in play that could potentially lead to war. And it's really through the administrations of Secretary of State Hamilton Fish, who is regarded as among the United States' best secretaries of state, um, that there's, not only do we not end up going to war, but we, we end up signing the Treaty of Washington, which uh, creates a structure for arbitrating the claims. Um, the British end up settling um, uh, some of the claims against Great Britain, and in the long run creates uh, a precedent that international arbitration, rather than recourse to war, is going to be the way in which great powers are going to deal with these questions. And it's a really important turning point in, in not only American diplomatic history, but also world diplomatic history. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's really a, a credit to uh, Hamilton Fish's diplomatic skill. And this man had no diplomatic background. I mean, he had been governor of New York, but had certainly not had the high-level diplomatic experience of someone like Charles Sumner, as well as Grant's vision in appointing him and, and listening to his advice and, and giving him enough rope to go and try this. Because again, it was not a popular move by any stretch of the imagination. War fever, particularly among Sumner's faction, was very, very high. Grant had hoped to bring the country together by developing the West. Reconstruction is a, has been deemed a failure. While the, while the North won the war, the United States was preserved. The Union stood, and, and that's such a nice uh, way to wrap it up. However, you cannot understand the meaning of American history 
unless you try and penetrate reconstruction. And it is complicated. It's so complicated, but basically Grant was tasked with, with bringing the country together and his idea, which followed in the footsteps of his hero, Abraham Lincoln, uh, was that, uh, that you, would, you would forge a, a future together for both North and South by developing the West. I mean, this is a well-known and increasingly uh, area of interest for historians because the West was, and Western development was the national heritage. So you have Grant uh, uh, emphasizing that in his first inaugural address and obviously uh, approving the, uh, the three laws that were passed and implementing them in 1862 under Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party, the Pacific Railroad Act. So the development of the first Continental Railroad as as flawed as it was, uh, and it, it, it was a great achievement in 1868 to complete that and the, the uh, buildings of other transcontinental railroads. The Morale, the Morale Education Act, which, uh, in which uh, the federal government gave land to states to establish agricultural colleges and, of course, is the seedbed from which our public universities have flourished ever since. And so, it, I mean, it was, um, and then, of course, the Homestead Act. So what did this mean? We know what it meant for Native Americans, and that was something Grant was also concerned about. But, it, but what it meant uh, in Grant's view, and I think in, in the Republican Party, that was the way to knit the nation together from coast to coast and involve, and involve the South in this as well. They thought it would be... Something that would promote unity, and and so that was that was one thing that he did as and he tried to manage as best he could the, the economy, and for his first four years from 1868 to 1872, uh, he did he his administration was was very popular and fairly successful, I would say. And that is, uh, that is um, uh, due to uh, many factors, but, it's, but as Charles Calhoun has, has written in his, in his magnificent volume on the presidency of U.S. Grant, the first, uh, the first study of Grant's presidency, his eight years in office, to be published, the first major study to be published since the 1930s, as he points out, Grant learned how to be a politician, and that's what's so interesting. The soldier statesman, the soldier statesman, Washington, Grant, and Eisenhower, all three men, the general, victorious generals of a defining war, and then the uh, and then presiding in in eight years over a, uh, the transformation of their country in very different ways. And that's what, that's what Grant was very much involved in. Settling the West meant the Grant administration needed a policy on how to handle the Native Americans who inhabited the territory. One of the things that I think is also important for people to recognize is the, the U.S. Army at the outset of the Civil War is incredibly small. It's about, got about 15,000 men. And almost all of them are out West picking fights with Native Americans. That's really what the Army does. It, it, they're Indian fighters. And so... After the war, you know, you have this large contingent that's in the South that's enforcing Reconstruction, but you also have a restive Native American population. And Grant has put some thought into this, and he says, you know, army the Army is the least likely organization to treat Native Americans poorly because they're going to be the ones that are going to have to do the fighting. Now, I think we can quibble with his logic there, but... Nevertheless, he does put some thinking into this, and he says, you know what we got to do? we got to get rid of the existing infrastructure. We have these Indian agents who are white men who act as liaisons between Native American uh, groups and the federal government. Um, they're corrupt. They don't have the Natives' best interests at heart. And so what Grant tries to do is he tries to fire all of them. 
and replace them with evangelical Christians and or Quakers, two groups that he believes are going to treat Native Americans fairly and are not going to use the job strictly to line their own nests. And this really, um, you know, annoys Republican members of Congress because, of course, Indian agent is an incredibly lucrative patronage job that they can use to uh, reward their supporters. So from the beginning, there are members of the Republican congressional delegation who are trying to hobble Grant's policies. But nevertheless, he does undertake these ambitious policies, and they do show some dividend. They do pay some dividends. By the time he's reelected in 1872, the amount of violent confrontations between the United States Army and Native Americans has gone down considerably. Um, things are never perfect. Um, there was certainly room for improvement. But nevertheless, Grant had put a lot of thought into U.S. relations with Native Americans. He had a plan, and he very much wanted to improve those relations, if for no other reason than to ensure um, that army that members of the army weren't getting killed in these essentially you know in these skirmishes with Native Americans. Grant's administration could boast of several achievements during their first term. Nevertheless, some Republicans remained unhappy with Grant, eventually nominating newspaper editor Horace Greeley to run against Grant as a liberal Republican. As you know, the election of 1872 is really bizarre. Grant, by the time he comes up for re-election, has put some points on the board. I mean, he's charted some notable successes. Um, several of his policies are paying dividends, um, including his desire to um, de-escalate tension between the United States and Native Americans, which is incredibly important. Uh, reconstruction, if not perfect, is, is certainly going... I don't want to use the word well, but it's not going terribly. Um, the Treaty of Washington is a major coup. Um, and, and economically, things are going well. Um, but again, because of this factionalism in the Republican Party and this sense that Grant has cozied up to one faction to the detriment of another faction... Um, people in the Republican Party are not happy with him, and, and that faction coalesces against around Charles Sumner um, and becomes known as the Liberal Republicans. And this is a really interesting group of guys. Um, they don't actually have a positive agenda. Their, their whole thing is basically they're the We Hate Ulysses S. Grant fan club. And so you get former Confederates, you get radical Republicans, you get people in the middle, and they sort of go looking for a candidate who is acceptable to all of them. And they find Horace Greeley, who is this very, you know, avuncular abolitionist who never met a contrary opinion he didn't love. I mean, yeah, he's an abolitionist, but he ends up giving money to bail Jefferson Davis out of prison. Like... You just look at this guy and you're like, who are you? And, you know, he's got no political experience. And and from the get-go, the re liberal Republicans were just an absolute mess. Um, and the Democrats are in such disarray that nationwide, they can't even get it together to nominate someone. But it's important to note that the fact that Grant wins a commanding re-election victory is not an endorsement of... Republicans or even of Grant's policies. It is an endorsement of Grant, not necessarily what he's doing. The Grant administration suffers a major setback in the midterm election of 1870, and in the midterm election of 1874, Republicans lose control of the House of Representatives for the first time since the war. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I want to emphasize that is because it's, you know, Grant's hands are more or less tied um, by that, by the fact that he as a person is more popular than the Republican Party generally or the policies that Republicans are lining up behind specifically. Um, and so as a result, yeah, Grant wins re-election, but there are a whole lot of things that are going to happen, particularly in the second term, that are going to make it increasingly difficult for him to consolidate um, his achievements and expand on them 
uh, when his second term begins in 1873. When the economy began to falter in Grant's second term, Grant's personal history of financial woes became the subject of criticism. And for years, historians have linked Grant's personal financial mismanagement to the Panic of 1873. So, I, you know, I think that we need to draw a distinction between Grant the man and the economic policies that Grant the president pursues. And you're absolutely right. Grant does not seem to, he's not a money-motivated person. Uh, as you know, you know, before the war, I mean, he's dirt poor before the war, um, and even ends up, you know, basically paying a bill several times, even though he knows it's fraudulent and that he already paid it. Um, you know, after the war, when he's incredibly popular and money is coming in, he's just, you know, he, he doesn't really seem to understand how money works. You know, he understands that it buys stuff, but he's, he's very naive, I think, when it comes to money. I mean, after he leaves the presidency, he's incredibly wealthy. He and his wife go to Europe and basically spend their fortune touring Europe for several years and then come back to the United States and basically is like, well, I guess I should do something for money now. Um, you know, and he's incredibly generous, you know, when he, after he comes back from his trip and he's set up in New York, he's giving away little tchotchkes from his office. You know, you would go see him and, you know, be like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting knickknack you have. Oh, here, take my knickknack. Well, you know, whatever it was, it, it had no value. That being said, I want to draw a really important distinction between that and his monetary policies, you know, and this is, again, one of those areas where I think Americans who have grown up in a post-Federal Reserve environment have a really hard time understanding the United States in, in the 1930s, where it's, you know, a really sort of bizarre environment. Um, you know, I wrote a whole book about the bank war, which is this really seminal moment in American political history when Andrew Jackson um, dismantles the central bank of the United States, the, the bank of the United States. And as a result, you have these wild fluctuations because private banks, which are chartered by the states, often in, in totally corrupt ways, are, are issuing paper money. And, you know, people, you know, you also have gold bugs who say the only the only true money is gold, and so when there are these massive gold or silver strikes, you know you have this uncontrolled fluctuation of money, and it's it's a really bizarre sort of setup. It's 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 un it's really weird is the only way I can describe it. Um, and and people who are interested in that should take a look at the bank war because I think I do a pretty good job of explaining that all. But the, the bank war ultimately is never resolved. The, the federal government never reestablishes uh, a central bank until the 20th century. And so what you end up with is a lot of state banks sort of trying to figure these things out. And during the Civil War, of course, that's not going to cut it. And so the federal government experiments with a variety of different funding mechanisms, one of which is printing paper money which is anathema to most people, um, but is the only way the government can fund the war. And so the minute the war is over, after everybody's done celebrating, you immediately get this return to form where people are demanding, get rid of the paper money, get rid of the paper money, get rid of the paper money. And so as a result, the Johnson administration initiates a policy of buying back paper money with treasury gold. And Grant continues and actually accelerates that policy. So the amount of money in circulation is actually shrinking. And as a result, there isn't enough money to go around. There isn't enough money to support the army. This is one of the reasons why the army shrinks and, and reconstruction, particularly later in Grant's term, is less effective. But also, you know, when you when you get to the Panic of 1873, Grant doesn't, doesn't do what every modern economist would tell him to do, which is pump liquidity into the economy by by you know issuing paper money he goes the opposite way and he says no we're going to continue um this policy and he signs into law a bill demonetizing silver so now not only is precious metal the only you know really the only currency or we're working toward making it the only currency now gold is the only currency 
And by deflating the currency, he actually makes the depression worse and longer. Allegations of corruption also dog Grant's presidency. One of the things that I like to remind audiences when I talk about this is that we live in a post-civil service reform era. And that um, government now is much more honest and transparent than it was in the 19th century. And that political power, it was really a function of building these state-level political machines that were, you know, basically factions of a party in the state that were held together by patronage and government jobs and government contracts and government money. Um, it's something I explore in great deal in my book on Simon Cameron, Amiable Scoundrel, that, you know, this was like, this was how politics operated. And so, you know, sort of the cost of doing business in the 19th century is very, very different. I mean, even the Lincoln administration sends to Congress signed blank officer commissions that influential Republicans could use as, you know, patronage rewards for um, their political allies back home. So everybody did this. It wasn't unique to Grant. Um, Grant believed himself to be a man of unimpeachable integrity. Uh, I think that's true. There's no evidence that he was personally corrupt. And so he saw no reason in not uh, accepting free gifts or, you know, stays at people's houses or, you know, a free mansion in the case of Philadelphia. Um, you know, because he thought, well, my decision isn't going to be in any way uh, influenced by this. I'm, I, I'm, I have integrity and it's unimpeachable. And on the one level, that's true. On another level, the fact that he was surrounded by nouveau riche Republicans who had been made wealthy largely by the war and had a vested interest in certain economic policies and certain foreign policies, I don't know that that would have ever crossed Grant's mind. I don't know that he could have recognized the ways in which he was being influenced by these individuals. And so on the one hand, he doesn't take a bribe. He's not venial in that way. I think the operation is much more subtle. Um, and it's in that sort of gray area where this is the way the politics gets done in the 19th century. And how do you navigate that as the most popular man in America who is being given gifts by a, a, a thankful nation, um, many of who, many of whose members have ulterior motives. Um, and yeah, it does get played up by his enemies. Um, his enemies go out of their way to make, to cast aspersions on this and to make charges, uh, real and false about Grant's alleged, um, corruption of which I found no evidence. Like I said, I mean, personally, his integrity is unimpeachable. That being said, he wasn't above accepting uh, gifts in ways that were really kind of icky. Reconstruction did not create lasting equality, but the brief period where blacks were politically empowered is remarkable. Now, as far as the South, this was, um, this was a, a time that is actually very exciting to study because what you had was the first biracial experiment on a large scale in the history of the world, really. And, and the idea was that the Republicans had determined the terms of Reconstruction in that, in that there were a number of, uh, I mean, there was still uh, white uh, men who fought for the Confederacy could not vote and and by giving the votes for African Americans, Republicans felt that they had a chance across the states of the South to win elections, to make sure their vision of Reconstruction prevailed in the South, but also to be to have a chance to win national elections going forward. Because after the the peace agreement was forged, 
both political parties, selfishly, of course, and, and, and realistically, thought, how can we win elections? And the Republicans were worried. How could they re- win elections when they, when they had no base of support in the South? Uh, they solved this problem through the Gilded Age, through the end of the 19th century, by admitting many Southern, but many Western states, and who no, would go Republican. But, but this this focus on the South and establishing Republic, a two-party system in the South, was was hugely important. So it benefited Republicans, but it also benefited African Americans for the first time. The, the national government, as throughout the war, was on their side. And that is, that is a really important thing to realize. And I think it's important to realize that Grant becoming, really, I, I would say, a champion of black people from his time in the Civil War, from the, the, the Reconstruction policies that he had to implement, from seeing on the ground in a way that nobody in Congress or, or um, um, could, could understand the real meaning of emancipation for African-Americans and how many African-Americans and, and who were enrolled in the Army and worked to help the Union armies um, uh, as they campaigned by, um, by performing all kinds of paid duties. This, this was something that no one else had. And, and he did have, and he had an, an idea that somehow African Americans would would flourish if the Republican Party could stay and stay in power in Southern states. So it so it was it's just a fascinating time, and and the the well known race riots of of the period, uh, whether in Louisiana or Mississippi or Georgia, um, are often um, the only thing people know about it. And, and of course, we do have to understand the violence and the murders that took place, and they were shocking. But there was also a lot of, a lot of exciting and interesting things happening as black and white uh, return uh, to what would be a new life, uh, but some, somehow return to normalcy in their... In their um, in, the area. I mean, it's it's. There's so many things about this that are that are complicated. But basically, that I mean, the narrative is that this was a an incredibly challenging time to be president. It it, it would defeat, I think, most people. But Grant uh, Grant actually had a good cabinet around him, and and he and he learned how to respond and in some ways manage the political uh, whirlwind that he inherited. It, it was, it, he was a center of stability for many Northern voters. And, and, but your, your comment earlier on is absolutely on point. Northern voters, as the, the 1870s progressed, became tired of the the constant interferences with uh, by the federal government with southern elections. It seemed that that um, the phrase "home rule for the South" was, was embraced incredibly by many former abolitionists and accounted for a large part of the membership of the liberal Republican uh, Independent Party of 1872 that challenged Grant in his second election, which he won with a great majority uh, because he was popular. But, but, it, but, it, but Northern voters began to withdraw their, their support, and certainly the uh, Depression of 1873 did not help. The scandals, the Grant administration, which, um, which also have been, have been exaggerated in, in their effect on on, um, I think, on the electorate, but but Grant remained a pretty popular president um, throughout his entire term in office. Like so many Northerners, Grant evolved on the issue of black suffrage. Gary Gallagher, the author of The Union War. He opposed black suffrage until Confederates behaved badly after the war. 
he did. He talks about that very specifically, how he went from a position of not thinking black men should be able to vote to how it was necessary that they vote. That's another, that's a separate learning curve. I mean, the North voted down again and again, black suffrage uh, at the, in the, in the late years of the war and in the early years of reconstruction. I think it was on the ballot 10 or 11 times and they voted it down eight of the 11. I think those, those might not be exactly the right numbers, but they're close. They overwhelmingly said no at the same time that they were arguing that black men had to vote in the former Confederate states. It's not a popular issue. Well, the, the, if you understand how a central union was to the Northern War effort, Reconstruction makes sense. If you're not willing to concede how important union was, it doesn't make sense. But if you do understand that, you know why the overwhelming majority of the one million citizen soldiers in uniform in May 1865 said the Confederates have surrendered, slavery's dead, check, check, send me home. There's nothing left to do. We don't have three things on our list to do here. One, save the Union. Two, get rid of slavery so it doesn't threaten the Union going forward. Three, bring true equality for black people. There's no three on their list. There are just two things on their list. They've accomplished both of them. And so the demobilization goes really rapidly, as you know. The only reason number three ever came back on the agenda at all is because former Confederates behaved so badly beginning in the summer of 1865 with the big assist from Andrew Johnson. It seemed like they, they were acting like they hadn't lost the war. And that offended the loyal citizenry of the United States. But if you understand, and so in the end, you get the 14th and 15th Amendments, which are sort of miracles when you consider what racial attitudes were in the mid-19th century. So Reconstruction, does it succeed perfectly in the short term? Of course it doesn't. There are a lot of successes for a while, and then they erode and you get Jim Crow. But the 14th and 15th Amendments never go away. And so in that regard, I think Reconstruction is, is incredibly successful in putting in place factors that will allow much greater attention to true equality going forward. Grant went on a world tour after leaving office. When he returned, he settled in New York City, eventually going into business with young financial hotshot Ferdinand Ward. Chris Mikowski, author of Grant's Last Battle, the story behind the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. Ferdinand Ward is uh, one of Grant's business partners. After he retires from the presidency, he does a round-the-world trip that lasts two years, he comes cross-country from San Francisco to New York, and he's honored all the way along. And then he finally gets to New York and something to do. Uh, his son, Buck, um, asks him to join in a financial partnership, and they create a firm called Grant and Ward. Ferdinand Ward is a third member of that uh, the business association. And James Fish, the president of Marine Bank, is the fourth partner. And uh, Fish, he's, you know, one of the great respected men on Wall Street, a great financier. Ferdinand Ward's known as the young Napoleon of Wall Street. He's just like a financial whiz kid. And Grant's job is basically to just put his name uh, on the firm and lend the prestige of his reputation. And then Buck kind of runs the day-to-day -day stuff in the office. And uh, so as the business gets going... Grant shows up at the office, he'll sign whatever papers Ward puts in front of him and spend his day smoking cigars and you know, hanging out with friends and talking business and, uh, you know, helping, the, you know, he's working on a railroad project with the, uh, the ambassador of Mexico and, you know, kind of obliviously went through his day and let Ward run the finances. You know, he's the young Napoleon of Wall Street. Well, it turns out Ward is running a Ponzi scheme. So when you compare him to Bernie Madoff, that's a great, uh, great comparison. So his, uh, Ward is robbing Peter and, and paying Paul by taking money from one investor and using that as his payback to another. Nobody knows this is going on. Ward is is uh, looks like he's creating returns on investment of like thirty and forty percent. The firm has the highest bond rating possible. Um, everyone thinks that, uh, you know, this guy's a genius. This is a secure investment. And so he continues to uh, to run this up. He's going to end up putting the firm about $16 million in the red by the time the house of cards crumbles around him. And Grant was oblivious to the whole thing. Only months later, Grant discovered he was sick with throat cancer. 
So he decides that he's going to um, try to earn some money by writing some uh, magazine articles for the Century Magazine, and then through the power of his own pen, earn some money um, because he's financially destitute after Ward rips him off. And uh, as he starts writing these articles, he, his family has uh, sort of hunkered down in a home that they own on the Jersey Shore as they're trying to liquidate properties and, and uh, you know, again, try to find some sort of financial footing. And, you know, as he's writing, one day he uh, comes in from the veranda and he sees some peaches on the table and he takes a bite and stings the, his throat terribly. And um, he can't get the sting out of his mouth. He's, he thinks an like, insect has, has stung the back of his throat. Um, but like a soldier, he's like, ah, I'll just walk it off, you know, and his wife's like, oh, let's go see the doctor. He's like, no, 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 I'll be fine, I'll be fine. Um, he complains of, of pain in his throat at dinner time, but he just keeps, you know, kind of ignoring it and and, uh, and working on his writing. His wife tries to get him to go see a doctor and he resists and she has a doctor come look at him and he, uh, you know, the doctor doesn't like what he sees and says, no, you ought to go see your, your doctor about this. And uh, he says, yeah, yeah, sure. But his doctor's in Europe. So he doesn't actually see his own doctor until October. So this is from June until October. And his doctor's like, oh, this is bad. Sends him to some specialists, and they determine that he's got a pretty far advanced throat cancer. And uh, they say that it's it's sometimes known to be cured, but it looks like it's pretty serious and uh, likely terminal. And so that's sort of what, what triggers the... Uh, the deadline and no pun intended there but he's got to try to finish his writing project before the cancer gets him and at first he's depressed and he's not able to write and finally about the beginning of the year in uh, 1885 he, he finds his feet again and and then just barrels headlong these magazine articles begin to transform and grow into what become his memoirs. Famed writer and friend Mark Twain played a huge role in the final months of Grant's life. It's like, this is kind of cast of characters to it that, you know, no Hollywood producer would dare try to create on his own because nobody would believe it. Um, Cause you've got, you've got, you mentioned Mark Twain, um, you know, P.T. Barnum makes an appearance. Sherman, you got the Vanderbilt, you know, the richest man in America. Um, and so you've got all these people who come into this story at, at various points. Um, Twain and, and Grant had been um, started out as, as, you know, acquaintances during Grant's presidency. Grant, the most famous man in the country, and, and Twain was sort of an up-and-coming young Turk of a, of a writer. Um, after Grant's round-the-world trip, Twain gives a, a very famous toast at a banquet in Grant's honor, and the two of them just strike off this great friendship. And, uh, you know, Twain's based in Hartford, Connecticut, but comes into New York City on business all the time, and so he'd stop by Grant's Wall Street offices at Grant and Ward, and the two would smoke cigars and tell stories. And Grant had always been trying to get, I mean, uh, Twain had always been trying to get Grant to write his memoirs, and Grant had resisted. So once he actually starts to try to you know, tackle the memoir project, Twain gets wind of it, and he tries to get Grant to publish the book through Twain's company. And so then there's sort of this uh, this publishing war that goes back and forth between the Century Magazine and uh, Twain's company. Twain will ultimately win that competition and will go to great lengths to protect Grant's interests. Um, you know, he'll assign the copyrights to Julia Grant Grant's wife, so that creditors can't try to steal the copyright and and you know uh, get the, the royalties or anything like that. So Twain really does write by Grant. Um, he says, you know, every American will be morally obligated to buy your book. I'm not worried about the money aspect. I want you to be able to say what you need to say. And uh, so it, it proves to be a very fruitful uh, publishing uh, project for both men. Grant spent the final weeks of his life finishing his memoir in a mountaintop cottage near Saratoga in upstate New York. Uh, and I am a huge fan of the Friends of Grant Cottage, which run the day-to-day -day operations up there at Mount McGregor. It is a spot that I tell everyone they should go and see because it's a, such a poignant location, so well-preserved, so well-interpreted, and you can stand right there next to the bed where Grant died. Um, you can sit right in the spot where he sat for you know six weeks and worked on the final drafts of his book. And uh, it's just uh, you know a very poignant location. He ends up there because um, as his condition continues to deteriorate, the doctors don't think he's going to survive the summer in the city because things get hot and muggy and miserable. And so they want to find someplace where he can have some fresh 
air. And um, they look at this newly built resort at the top of Mount McGregor, the Balmoral Hotel. Um, the Drexel family from Philadelphia has a, a major stake in that. And the Joseph Drexel offers to let Grant stay in his own personal cottage that's adjacent to the, uh, the the grounds of the the main hotel. Drexel hasn't even stayed in the house. It's so brand new. Uh, has some some quick changes made to accommodate Grant, and Grant gets a, a private train from the Vanderbilts and uh, heads north. And uh, in the middle of uh, of June of 1885, and will spend the last six weeks of his life at the top of the mountain, um, doing the last bits of his writing. Uh, entertaining some guests who are coming to pay their final respects. And uh, what I think is particularly neat about that episode is that uh, by that point, his, his throat is so bad that he can't really speak. And so he has to write out his parts of the conversation. And so pretty much everything he said in the last six weeks of his life is written down in pencil on little scraps of paper. Uh, his family called it pencil talk. And so you can really get a, a wonderful uh, insight into what's going on in Grant's head through this paper talk because it's all captured there. Grant's memoir was popular and his writing was acclaimed for being conversational and accessible. That's a great distinction. Um, and of course, my my doctoral degree is in English and creative writing. I'm, you know, I'm not a historian by training in that regard. And so I'm able to look at, uh, at Grant's memoirs as memoirs. That was the main area of my focus when I was working on my PhD. Um, and a memoir is... Uh, a distinctly different beast than a piece of history because it's it's the history as Grant saw it and chose to remember it. And he did go to great lengths to try to ensure factual accuracy. But by calling it a memoir instead of his own autobiography or a history, um, he's able to kind of, you know, emphasize the things he wants to emphasize and leave out the things he wants to leave out. And he can interpret things as he saw them. And that's what makes the memoir um, a particularly um, advantageous but also dangerous document to look at from a historical point of view because it is biased it is slanted and certainly he's one of the greatest men of the age he's his perspective is important but he does have his own biases that are built into that um, that said it's a wonderful piece of writing and it's easy to get sort of um, swept up into the allure of it because it's so clear it's so concise it's so insightful um, but it is grant's perspective 135 years after his death, Grant's memory continues to evolve. I think it's a, it's a significance that can only be appreciated if you, if you understand the, uh, the impact of the sacrifice of the Civil War upon so many millions of Americans and how Grant, his, 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 death and dying seem to rekindle all the feelings that people had, uh, the deep memories, the important memories that were, uh, that were already uh, displayed in all these monuments and the, the, the beginning of the, the national military parks. Just, uh, it just, just was an emotional thing. And I think that historians are increasingly looking at emotions and emotional history as, as something that is vital, something that is important and meaningful, and we can, to some extent, quantify that. And that's what I found. I found that there, in, in looking at images and counting images and looking at the vast coverage of Grant's, of Grant's uh, uh, post-war career, his his and uh, uh, the the publicity surrounding his dying his death and and his funeral and the building of his monument that this he was he was the vessel through which people grieved once again and reflected on what the civil war meant to them and i think i found this in in the south as well as the north although it was Obviously, in the South, it was very powerfully expressed by African Americans, and in but also uh, also expressed by many white Southerners, at least for this purpose, where they where they 
thought uh, they seem to think that that well we accept that we lost we are we're appreciative of grants of grants magnanimous terms at Appomattox and going forward and and I, I, I just thought it was incredible and it's important to that's why it's important to understand that historical memory and memorialization is not fixed. Every generation has their um, has their uh, their take. Uh, subse- subsequent generation after the Civil War has their take on what is the most important memory tradition, if you will. Uh, is it the, the, the memory of the Union? Is it the memory of, of the African American experience? Is it the memory of the lost cause? Or, as, as I think that uh, became clear to me, is it reconciliation and reunion? And I think that is, that is there is a distinction between reconciliation and, and reunion. The country was reunited, but was it reconciled? That, that, has, been, that has been argued, but I think uh, pro and con. But I think that, um, that it is, an achievement that we as Americans don't often appreciate that that a country like ours fought this incredibly vicious, bitter, costly civil war in so many ways, but yet we came back together as a nation somehow and and went into the 20th century as a whole nation, which isn't the case. In many, in many uh, parts of the world. In a poignant scene at Mount McGregor, Grant sat with his old friend, Confederate General Simon Buckner. 23 years earlier, Grant famously offered Buckner unconditional and immediate surrender at Fort Donelson. Grant was optimistic about reconciliation and believed his memoir would help secure his legacy. Nevertheless, he expressed concern to his friend and former enemy about the emerging lost cause interpretation of the war. One of my favorite episodes at Mount McGregor is he's sitting on the porch and Simon Bolivar Buckner, the former Confederate general, stops by to visit. Um, Buckner's coming back from his honeymoon with his new wife and they stop to see Grant. And Grant and Buckner had been old friends in the old army and, and had uh, maintained contact through the Civil War. The, the pencil talk that Grant exchanges is great because you can tell they're just old buddies busting each other's chops. Um, but Grant says at one point during that conversation, he says that... Uh, you know, it seems to him that he's he, uh, you know, the American spirit tends to really be lending itself toward this spirit of reconciliation, and it seems like the only two people who who aren't satisfied with it are Generals Early and D. H. Hill, but everyone else seems to be getting along just fine and and being glad about it. And knowing, you know, after the fact, how influential Early and Hill would be as lost cause writers. And what they would do to uh, essentially gut Grant's reputation in the post-war years, um, that becomes a particularly ironic observation of Grant's, that they're the only two who are unhappy. Well, they make uh, a pretty big to-do about it. And uh, in order to prop Robert E. Lee's reputation up, they have to tear Grant down. And so Grant really does get painted um, not as the hero of the age and not as this this, um, pivotal figure of reconciliation, um, but really is Grant the Butcher, Grant the Drunk, Grant the Corrupt President. There wasn't a single thing that you could say positive about the guy. And as you mentioned, like within the last 20 years, um, that reputation has undergone a significant reformation. And I give mad props to Brooke Simpson for that. Um, he's been really kind of on the leading edge of this, um, what I think is a very fair critical reanalysis of Grant's career. And, uh, and you know, I think Brooks' work is just indispensable to read when it comes to, to really trying to figure out who this guy really was amidst all of that negative publicity. And of course, you know, Grant's gotten some some great treatment in other biographies as well. The, the white biography, um, Chernow's book brought him to a huge mass audience. I suppose we could thank Alexander Hamilton for that because Hamilton's success on Broadway really meant that Grant's biography was going to reach a huge, huge audience um, just for commercial 
purposes. And so we've we've seen some of these um, major reinterpretations, um, major reintroductions of Grant. Um, I'll point out Frank Varney's biography, which um, uh, rewriting history, which was um, quite controversial when it came out. But I think that that Frank does uh, uh, make some fair points about how we need to be careful and cautious about reevaluating Grant. There are some things that we do need to kind of keep in mind. Uh, but I think it's wonderful that Grant has been undergoing this uh, this tremendous renaissance, and he's getting a, a closer look, and we're we're appreciating. Uh, the positives of his presidency and his, his uh, role as a civil rights champion. Uh, there's really a lot to admire about him. Thank you for listening to part two of this special two-part edition of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and please visit our website, capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. A special thank you to Joan Waugh, Daniel T. Davis, Gary Gallagher, Chris Mikowski, and Paul Cahan for participating. Please check out their many works.